It's Wednesday, September 17th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. You shouldn't take that personally. I'm glad to be back. I won't. I won't. <laughs> Uh, there, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. We will also dip into the full mailbag, but let's start with something that you had. Let's start with a couple of things that you had written recently. Um, and if you're not reading Morgan stuff, what are you doing? I mean, just Morgan's one of the best writers we have. You need to read his stuff. And this was something you had written late last week, um, uh, which is I, I got to say, it's my favorite thing that you write. Which is your sort of your take on other bits of news out there. So, in this case, it's uh, an article you wrote entitled Eight Fascinating Reads. And the first thing you wrote about uh, I thought would be fun to discuss, and that is um, a story regarding fidelity accounts and which fidelity accounts perform the best. Right. And I got to say, I know you. I know the way you write. This was surprising to me. <laughs> right. This this surprised me, too. So years ago, Fidelity did a study on their own internal accounts. And it's great for a company like Fidelity to do this because they have tens of millions in accounts. So it's a ton of data, really good data. They wanted to see what were some of the characteristics of investment accounts that performed the best over the years. So they sorted all the data, and they came up. And I'm just guessing. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm just guessing that at least part of their thesis was, hey, Let's use this as a way to figure out who are the best people we have on our team who are giving the best advice, because that's going to lead to the best returns. I, I, that's, 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 that's probably pretty one part of it. I'm sure, I'm sure that was part of it, too. So they sorted all the data, and they came up with a group, a cohort, that did particularly well, that consistently earned the best investment performance over time. And what that cohort had in common is that they were all dead. <laughs> They were literally people who had, who had, who had either died or I, forgotten about that they had that they had accounts at Fidelity. One of those two characteristics: they were either dead or they didn't even know they had accounts at Fidelity. Over the years, those people performed the best because they had no trading, they had no portfolio turnover. They just owned some stocks or owned some bonds, and they just let them run for years and years on end. And those are the people that did best. And I think that's such a powerful observation because it just shows that the amount of fidgeting and tweaking that we do with investments overwhelmingly just takes away from investment performance over time. What is the next hot trend? What is the next hot industry? What's the next hot IPO? All that stuff, it's really exciting in the short run, and we can rationalize it and say, this is how I'm going to become wealthy going forward. It almost always just detracts away from it. And it just really goes to show something that we talk about a lot at The Fool is that what you really need is a good portfolio of stocks and bonds, good allocation, and then just let it run. Let it, let it grow over the years. That's what you got to do. But it's very hard for people. It's very hard for professional investment managers to do that, too, because they can't justify their salary if they say, just buy this and leave it alone. They, <laughs> they need to come at you every month if you're a stockbroker and say, Sell this, do this, trade this, get out of this, get into this. That's how they make their money, but it's a terrible way to invest. Yeah, I've said before, my favorite Charlie Munger quote is, "I like to buy great companies and then sit on my ass." That's that's a good, that's a good one, right? <laughs> um, one of the other things you wrote about uh, is a disturbing trend for people at CNBC, and that is the fact that CNBC's audience in the month of August hit a 21-year low. Now, this is there are a lot of different ways to measure audience 
and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but the the target demographic, the key demographic for advertisers and therefore for television networks, is adults age 25 to 54. Yep. And in that key demo, that was the demo that it hit. Because just in terms of raw numbers, CNBC is available in many millions more households today than it was 21 years ago. Yep. But that demographic hit a 21-year low. It was something like, I think, an average of 28,000 viewers, which means that in a given measurable block of time, I think I, I, I think they do it in 15-minute increments. It's not a, many. A network that is available in, I, I'm going to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million homes, sure. maybe north of that, easily in the United States, had 28,000 viewers in that key demographic. Um, the only thing I'll say in CNBC's defense, August, broadly, is a bad month for television, for radio. People go on vacation. They, yeah. they want to sit. They yeah. want to go barbecue. We like have that. a couple dozen fewer listeners in August ourselves right. than we do other months during the year. All that said, 21-year low. You didn't even shower in the month of August. I, you know, People well, just people just stopped caring in that month. Exactly. No, I, look, for CNBC, you know, I, I, I do have a lot of respect for the network. I think they've been – I think they've done a lot of good over the last two decades. I've learned a lot about investing from CNBC over the years, but I think, and this is not a unique perspective that I have, a lot of people think this, is that really in the last five or ten years, investors in general have moved away from trading towards long-term investing. That's why companies like Vanguard are exploding in popularity. But CNBC has by and large stuck to a trading platform where their content and their guests revolve around what's the trade for the next week? What is this stock going to do today? What's happening this minute, this second? What's going on now, now, now? I think 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was a lot of interest in that. Now there is virtually none. And I, I, I really think that CNBC, and again, this isn't, uh, so many people think this. I'm just repeating what other people have said. CNBC could do a lot better if they moved towards a business platform where they really talked about business models and business stories and long-term trends and business topics rather than you know is the dow is the dow approaching resistance levels and about to fall in a death cross formation you know people don't don't care about that anymore but it's what they do so hopefully hope, hopefully things will turn around because i i really liked cnbc back in the day but i don't watch it anymore i don't even have cable anymore i uh, they have a lot of smart people there um it is interesting though particularly when you think about during the day and on the one hand well, it's the trading day, so therefore they have to be on. And yet, I think the best stuff that they do is not actually during the trading day. It's in day. the evening when they have the documentaries about businesses, when, right? When they, the, I think the documentaries are the best things they do. I think the uh, Squawk on the Street, um, the uh, from 9 to 9.30, I, uh, I had lunch with Carl Hintonia uh, last year, and I told him that. I said, I think the... I think the the 30 minutes from 9 to 9.30 that you do with David Faber and Jim Cramer, I think that's the best 30 minutes in all of the daytime programming that you guys do. There's but it's not, let's be clear, this is not just CNBC's problem. Flip over to ESPN sports fans and look at when you commit to, well, we're going to have live programming during the day, just the... You just start making stuff you up. Just start That's making all st- cable news. There's a really good line I thought it was hilarious when Jim Cramer went on John Stewart's The Daily Show in 2009. It was 2010. Uh, John Stewart had a clip reel of just ridiculous things that CNBC says on live TV, just kind of making stuff up when there's nothing to say. 
And Jim Cramer said, well, John, you have to understand, we have 17 hours of live TV to fill yeah. every day. And John Stewart said, maybe you could cut down on that. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, what's really changed in the last 20 years when we went from one hour of Lewis Roy Kaiser to 17 hours of live TV. Like, there's not more news today than there was 20 years ago. There's just, right. there's just a need to f- make up more news. So you just, it's just a race to the bottom of who can make up the most ridiculous non-news story and try to make it seem interesting. Yeah, I mean, just to bring it back to The Motley Fool, I, I, I don't want to, hopefully people don't think we're, we're picking on CNBC. But no, just, I, I really but like CNBC. Just to bring it, bring it back to The Motley Fool, every once in a while here, uh, someone will propose, hey, should we, should we be doing more programs? Should we be doing like, like four hours of live programming? And, and anytime you get brought into those conversations, I always say, I'll be honest, there are days when we have trouble filling 20 minutes on Market Fuller. I have no idea what we would do to try and fill four hours every single day. Um, I, I, I want to get to sort of something we, we, ta- we talked a little bit about before we started taping, and that is trends in general, because it's, it's something that you write about. It's something I'm starting to focus more on. And the challenge I'm having is figuring out when do trends really matter, and when are they just sort of interesting to look at, but they don't really have any meaning. Meaning, and I'm thinking primarily of smoking. Right. Whereas cigarette smoking, you know, tobacco consumption in the United States has been falling year over year. I I think it was within the last month or so. It I peaked saw, in like 1972 or something. Right. Some and and it's decades. now at its lowest level in in just I'm going to say 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And yet. If twenty years ago you bought shares of Philip Morris, if you you know if you look at tobacco stocks, you've done quite well. And granted, they're they're doing a lot of business overseas, but you know that's that's an area where you could look at the trend and say, "Gosh, I got to get out of this." I would add to that. Not only have you done quite well, but in the fifty-year period from nineteen sixty to twenty ten, Philip Morris, or it's what it's now called Altria, that was the single best stock you could have owned in that fifty-year period. By far, it returned more than half a million percent return. No one even came close to that. It's so not only did it did okay during that period when smoking rates were declining substantially. It was literally the best stock you could have possibly owned over that fifty-year period. And in terms of trend, what does that mean? I think that's just a good example that things are usually much more complicated than we think they are. And it would be so easy to look at smoking trends and say this stock is doomed, and it did the exact opposite of that, because things are just much more complicated than saying decline in smoking rates, say this company is going to fall, because there were two other variables involved in that. Smoking rates have declined, but smoking prices have surged, and that has made up for more than the the decline in smoking rates. The other thing about it, from an investing standpoint, is that Philip Morris stock has been very, very cheap, perpetually cheap for decades, because smoking rates are declining, which makes investors nervous, and because there's this massive litigation risk of basically everyone that has ever looked at Philip Morris has sued the company, right? So that keeps the stock cheap. They pay out a great dividend combined with a cheap stock. If you reinvest that dividend, you know, because a cheap stock makes a high yield, you reinvest that, it's a compounding machine over time. So it's just more complicated than looking at one variable and saying, because of X, Y is going to happen. And that's a good lesson, I think, for almost everything in life, but especially investing in the economy. It's never so simple that we can say, because the economy is doing X, the stock market is going to do Y. It just doesn't work that way. There are trillions of moving parts. And when you try to simplify it down to one variable or one cute little elegant sentence, you're going to end up hurting yourself. And it's like the, the quote from Einstein, he said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. 
I think when we try to distill things down to one variable, we're making it way too simple. It's never that simple. Well, and certainly for investors, it's it's a good reminder that there are those categories of businesses out there that people will stay away from just because they don't like the business. There are people who say, I don't want to own tobacco stocks. I don't want to own gun manufacturers. I don't want to own casino stocks because I, I don't think, you know. And if you feel strongly about that, that's absolutely the way you should invest. Right. But if you don't feel strongly about it, recognize that there are fewer people looking at that. The, the universe of investors uh, looking at that stock and making the decision to click the buy button is, by virtue of of that uh, passion that people feel, smaller. And so that right. could be, that could be a that greater works in opportunity. Your favor. I think just in general, companies that are either very boring or very hated, over time on average, will make some of the best investments that you can you could ever buy. And that's why companies like Philip Morris, Altria have done so incredibly well. You just when you said businesses that are very boring, what flashed in my mind was the look on Matt Copenheffer's face and Joe Mager's face when they talk about companies that are really boring because it is a look of pure delight. They, they you, those are two guys who just their eyes light up at a boring business because they think, oh, this is this is great because. So many people will just stay away because it's boring, and they're two guys who love boring businesses. It's it's not only that investors don't like them that makes them great, makes them cheap, which makes them good investments. It's that boring companies tend to be much more sustainable over time. So if you look at a company like Apple, it's so exciting and so innovating, but Apple has to basically reinvent itself as a company every year. That is very tough to do, and it's done a great job of that. And I'm not saying it's not going to keep doing that in the future. I think Apple's got a great future. But that's very difficult to keep coming out with Blockbuster new products every year. If you look at a company like Clorox, they sell the same product today that they did 50 years ago. There is no reinvention there. Or Coca-Cola, they sell the same syrup today that they did 100 years ago. When you're a company like that, it's much more sustainable. And you can look at it and say, I'm much more confident that Clorox is going to be a business 50 years from now than Apple. So if you're a long-term investor and you want to hold shares in a company for 50 years, I would much rather hold Clorox and Apple. I think you're going to probably get a better return over the next 50 years. Yeah, I'm pretty sure 50 years from now we're still going to be cleaning stuff. We'll we're still st- be cleaning. We'll stuff. still be doing laundry. But who knows if we're going to, what we're going to be using for phones or tablets or whatever, or if we still call them phones. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got a question from Bensi Abraham in Arizona. What impact will Scotland's vote for independence have on U.S. markets and for individual investors? Very timely question. I I don't know exactly when that vote is, but I know it's I think coming. It's today. Is it I today? think it's right now. Yeah. Um, I, I just saw on Twitter yesterday that Sean Connery, possibly the most famous Scotsman, uh, you know, not voting. He's not voting. Yeah. Well, that's, that's throwing the towel then. Yeah. Either what impact does this have for U.S. investors, the U.S. economy? It's probably almost none. I mean, if there's a bad outcome, maybe there's a knee-jerk reaction in U.S. markets. But I don't think things like this should be what U.S. investors should be concerned about. Ukraine and Russia have been have been going at it for the last several months. Right. What impact has it had on U.S. markets? None. I mean, it's dials at an all-time high as we speak right now. I think if you live in Scotland and the vote is yes uh, for independence, that is a completely terrible, dramatic, awful outcome. (laughs) Scotland is overwhelmingly, almost more than almost any country in the world, reliant on banking. Banking is what, banking is Scotland's economy. And every major bank, World Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's and whatnot, that is uh, headquartered in Scotland, has said, if Scotland leaves the UK, they're going to move to England. 
and they're done. Uh, it, and you would just see, I think, a tremendous flight of capital out of Scotland, investors that don't want, you know, right now it's a strong country because you have the backing of the whole UK and a strong currency and whatnot. You leave it by itself and you effectively become a third world country that no one wants to invest in anymore. I, just, I, I, I think most people know that. I think enough uh, reputable names uh, over the last couple of weeks have made their point that this would be an awful, awful outcome for Scotland's economy. Whether it's not a bad outcome, you know, socially and morally or whatnot, I don't have any opinion on that. But economically, I think invariably it's going to be a bad outcome if it's yes. You can follow us on Twitter at MarketFillery is our handle. Uh, got a question from Austin Lieberman, who writes: I'm coming to visit D.C. in late September. What are the must dos and must sees? I'm really trying to make it to Full HQ for a member tour. Uh, member tour. Foolcoin made me rich. I love the shout out to Foolcoin, our April Fool's <laughs> joke. So nice pull, Austin. Uh, and yes, definitely come by Fool HQ. Uh, the door is always uh, open, uh, and we and we do give member tours. So um, if you're in, if you're in town and interested, you can just email us radio at fool dot com, and we'll we'll get it to the folks who run the tours. Uh, but you are, I have some thoughts because I've lived in the area for more than twenty years. You're a recent transplant, right? To the greater DC area, what are a couple of things that you that you would recommend for someone coming to visit? There are two off the top of my head. One is you, if you are a fan of Chipotle, and if you're not, you're, you're probably not alive. But if you are, <laughs> if you like Chipotle, Chipotle has a, a tiny subsidiary that does Chinese food called Chop House. I'm pretty sure the only two. I was going to say you're, you're not recommending that people go to Chipotle, are you? Because you could do that. Well, you much could anywhere. do that. I would I would recommend doing that wherever you are, but. <laughs> Chipotle has a Chinese restaurant. It's the same style as Chipotle called Shop House. Have you ever been to Shop House? I have not. Uh, it is we, delicious. We we had them uh, cater something. The the first that's right catering did Shop House catering. ever did was here at the Motley Fool. I'm pretty sure Shop House only has two locations in existence, and they're both in DC. I'm pretty sure that's true. I, I think they have. Do they have more? Maybe I'm, they maybe have I'm a, just making. Yeah, I think up. they're up to like eight now, and okay. they have they have a few in Southern California. But whatever whatever city Austin is in, maybe it's I I doubt they're there. I would highly recommend trying out Shop House. It's incredible. The first time I had Chipotle in 2004, I, I remember the first bite, <laughs> sinking my teeth into it and just saying, oh, my God, this is, this is completely different. And the first my time, world has changed. My world has changed. And the first time I had Shop House, it was the same. It's incredible. The other, this is not local, but this weekend I went to Longwood Gardens. Have you ever been to Longwood Gardens? I, I don't it's know what that is. It's closer to Philadelphia than D.C. It's about an hour and a half drive north of here. It's just this gigantic park that used to be owned by Pierre Dupont. And it is the it is the nicest garden arboretum just place to hang out I think I've ever been to. It was incredible. Completely blew my mind. That's a drive though. That's that's probably 2 hours from DC. Yeah, that's not that's not But I haven't lived here that long to know many <laughs> cool things to do. So I have to expand my borders. I will say that obviously the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, Jefferson Memorial, you know, the sort of the, the mainstay memorials and monuments get a lot of attention. I think a hidden gem when it comes to memorials is Roosevelt Island, which is um, never been there. Is the the monument to Teddy Roosevelt? It's I, I highly recommend it, particularly this time of year when the weather is nice and it's just you can access it. Uh, there's a footbridge uh, from. Uh, just right across Georgetown, so it's just across the Potomac River. It's easy to get to. Um, I think I think that is a wonderful place, um, and I think that uh, you know one of the things I'm always struck by um, is uh, right by the Lincoln Memorial. You have the Vietnam War Memorial, and I have been there many many times, 
at all hours of the day, you know, weekdays, weekends, middle of the day, morning, late at night, there are always people there. It is, it is, um, it's always uh, an experience to go there, and they're and they're right next to one another. Um, but the, the the what I love about the Lincoln Memorial is uh, that on both obviously the huge statue, but on either side you have the Gettysburg Address and yep. you have Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is phenomenal for two reasons. I think uh, the first is it's a presidential inaugural address that if you read it maybe takes about five minutes. <laughs> just thought, boy, what a treat for those people, you know, because right. now, because now presidents are giving these, you know, 45 hour long, right. um, interrupted by applause, et cetera, et cetera. Most speeches, no one's listening after five minutes. Right. So um, well but stop. but it is it is a phenomenal piece of writing because it is while the Civil War is still going on and Lincoln simultaneously is trying to reach out and heal the nation and he is also, just in cold political terms, just smacking down his opponents. It's 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 a, it is a breathtaking speech. I don't think I've read it, but I want to now. See, now you got to go. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd, who could not be happier about the Washington Nationals making it into the playoffs. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.